You wanted the best. You've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to give us a, a, a good referral there on the iTunes. Give us like five stars. Tell everybody that uh, you love us. Hopefully you'll love us. I guess if you don't, I won't get five stars. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> be sure to refer the show to your friends, neighbors, and relatives. TheCBPN.com or ChrisVossPodcastNetwork.com. You can see online podcasts. There's nine freaking podcasts over there. Uh, a lot of silos, stuff that you'll still hear on the Chris Voss Show here. But if you're hearing this on some of our other uh, siloed properties, uh, like Book Authors Podcast, where maybe you just want to listen to all the cool book authors we have on, you can do that as well. Or you can do, you know, whatever you want, really. It's a free country, last time I checked. Um, but stay tuned. Uh, anyway, guys, we have some, uh, we've been having a lot of great discussions uh, surrounding Black Lives Matter. It's kind of something that uh, we didn't really plan for, but just kind of serendipity came about. And uh, currently it's a topic in the news and protests are still going on. People are still demanding their rights as they should. And uh, let's talk about some of the different aspects of it. Uh, I invited a brilliant gentleman, a Ph.D., he is Dr. Kyle Ashley to come on the show. Uh, he's a father to his daughter, who he proudly calls his greatest teacher. Uh, he himself is a longtime educator with a Ph.D. educational leadership background and an extensive professional career in student affairs and higher education. He is currently a stay-at-home dad and an influential thought leader on issues related to men, masculinity, fatherhood, and critical perspectives on whiteness. Uh, he's authored several book chapters and presents his work at the national conferences around the country. Him and his wife, Ariel, co-authored the book Vital, A Torch for Your Social Justice Journey. And it's uh, received a few awards and uh, been pretty awesome. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Dr. Kyle Ashley? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. There you go. Welcome to the show. And, uh, you know, I, I gotten familiar with you guys. I just happened to see a, a Facebook post popped up and, uh, it was a Facebook discussion workshop you guys were having on a call to white parents. What's your role in racial justice? So uh, thanks for coming on the show. You guys were having a real insightful discussion. Give us your plug so people can, uh, check you out on the interwebs there. Yeah. Uh, folks can find me at my website, www.kyleashley.com. And that's Ashley with uh, two E's, so A-S-H-L-E-E. Uh, you can also find uh, some of my work with my wife at ashleyconsulting.com. Awesome sauce. So you guys have a consulting business as well. That's great. You guys are out there getting people educated. So uh, give us a little background on yourself, what brought you into this field, what made you interested in, in pursuing um, topics like these? Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from a, a small rural town, uh, in mid-Michigan. And so, you know, I grew up out in the country, kind of surrounded by cornfields. Uh, my, my family uh, was really into hunting and, uh, you know, just kind of grew up in that sort of white bread, uh, very, very kind of, uh, you know, privileged um, sort of background. And I never really thought much about any of these topics uh, until I got to college. But uh, while I was growing up, I think I, I always felt like um, I was a little different, you know, I would look around and see, yeah, all, all these guys in my family who are really into hunting and, uh, had their big trucks and stuff. And I was always sort of more into music and poetry and philosophy. And, you know, I, I was kind of one of those kids that throughout school, people called me a, a Renaissance man. And I didn't really know what that meant, but, uh, but I, I always felt the dissonance between the, the, the way that I, uh, that I felt and sort of what I saw in the world and, and it didn't really match. And so when I got to college, I, I just started to experience uh, a different world, really. You know, I met people who were different from me. I, I started to uh, have my eyes open to, to the bigger world. And, uh, and then I went off to graduate school and uh, graduate school was really where, where, uh, you know, I, I had the rug pulled out from under me. 
And I was, it was a deep dive into social justice in graduate school. And um, that's really where I started to explore privilege for the first time. And uh, it was not pretty, you know, it, it was not a pretty thing uh, because I did not have any previous experience or, or background talking about uh, those kinds of topics. And so um, I was defensive. I was um, fragile in all the ways that you can be fragile. Um, you know, minimizing people's experiences and telling them that they were wrong about what they were telling me. That they, they were had experiencing and feeling. <laughs> no, you're not really experiencing that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I did, you know, because it, it, uh, it wasn't anything that I was familiar with and it wasn't anything that I was prepared to actually believe about. Um, and so uh, after that experience in my master's program, I went out into the world and, and kind of decided that this is really important and I, I want to start having these kinds of conversations with other people because, uh, again, once I had that rug pulled out from underneath me, I realized that even though those conversations that I had were very difficult, they were good for me. I grew a lot from those conversations. And so uh, I set off trying to do that kind of work with, uh, with college students um, around the country at different places that I worked. And then I met my wife a few, a few years later and uh, we decided uh, – that that work that, that we wanted to do that together and uh, that it was so important. We didn't want to just do it in our jobs, but we kind of wanted to go around to teams and organizations and, and do that kind of work. So we do facilitation. We talk about issues like race and gender privilege, power and oppression. And, uh, and really every time I have one of these conversations, um, I walk away feeling, um, you know, a little bit more whole, a little bit more complete because again, just going back to my background, um, I feel like there was a whole world that was sort of hidden from me growing up um, about the way that, that people, people of color, women, um, that they experienced the world that I didn't know about. And so now, you know, that I'm having those conversations and learning about these, these perspectives all the time, I feel like uh, I'm getting a, a clearer vision of, of what the world is really like. Um, and, and I think that's good. One, one of the things that I really focus on in this work is trying to help people like me uh, who have lots of privilege uh, understand the ways that, um, th that having privilege is uh, harmful to us, actually, that it, it actually causes us harm. And so um, that's, that's a big part of my work and what brings me to doing this. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm glad you went on that journey. I mean, I've had to go on that journey not only throughout my life, but it's been it's been a growth thing. Uh, it's been helpful to learn from some of these things. But yeah, I mean, there's there's elements of shame to it. There's elements of anger. Um, you know, I mean, when you're when you're raised, a lot of times white privilege. You know, you're kind of taught to manifest destiny. America is the greatest, and mm -hmm. a bunch of us white people came to America and we turned it into the greatest whatever the greatest, I don't know, what is it, the greatest strip mall and the largest prison <laughs> complex right now? Uh -huh. Be so proud. Um, we, we have, what is it, we have 4% uh, of the world's population, 25% of the world's population in jail or, mm -hmm. you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, good. Way to go. Merk. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and it's complicated, right, because yeah. – uh, you know, we, we do have a set of values in this country where we can talk about these things and we can disagree. And, and that's not the case in other country. You know, I've, I've traveled quite a bit and worked, uh, worked around the world and it, it is certainly a different thing here. And, and we don't have it, uh, we don't have it figured out by any means. And, uh, and again, the more I learn, the more I realize, yeah, we, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, you talk about the prison population, um, you know, again, even just, connecting that back to race, right? Like, uh, it's, it's just, um, yeah, uh, we got a lot to figure out still. And, um, our, our country is a unique place. And this, the statistics speak for itself, if not just the voices crying out for help. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things you address and talk about is privilege in a lot of different ways, because you, you, uh, talk about it in, uh, you know, uh, issues with misogyny, uh, how women are treated, uh, domestic violence, I'm sure, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, a lot of my work really focuses on on gender and race. And so uh, the, the gender work has been really looking closely at masculinity and what it means to be a man. And um, all too often, I think, uh, in this country and, you know, in my experience growing up, the way that I was taught about what it means to be a man uh, is really around uh, violence 
you know, unfortunately, it's around, it's around oh, violent country. It's really awful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I don't think that's a good thing for anybody. Uh, violence is, is not healthy or positive for anybody to be around. And so um, I, I like to think about the different ways of, of masculinity, different ways of, of being a man, because uh, I, I really want to, um, yeah, try and create healthier, healthier ways of being. There definitely is. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, I learned in my business a long time ago that there's always a way to improve everything. Nothing is ever finished in its form or function. Uh, even when you make some, you know, when I'd make a new widget, I'd be like, okay, how do we make this better? It's imperfect now. So how do we make it better? Uh, there's always ways to improve. Uh, that's one of the things frustrating about people who scream, you know, white lives matter, or black lives matter isn't anything. Um, you're like, well, no, hold on. Some people need some help. Let's lift them up. Rising tide lifts all boats. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's figure out what's going on. Let's listen. Let's learn and make things better. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I don't know. I think most people can agree that we've definitely had a uh, problem with race and racism uh, in this country for 400 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still haven't resolved a lot of it. And it may take us another 400 to resolve it all. Uh, hopefully it won't take that long, but who knows? Um, so what are some, what are some ways, what what are some advice that you would give on these sort of topics, whether they're, whether they're with white privilege or whatever that can help people kind of, uh, well, give us an overview if you want, or, or, you know, help us shed some light on, on how people can, you know, look inside and deal with these issues. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think one of the the easiest ways um, for, for me, I'll just say, you know, speak from my own experience, one of the easiest ways for me to, to do work around race and white privilege is to just think about the mistakes that I've made, to think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, the the bias and the the social conditioning that I've received throughout my life um, that have been, that have been racist. Um, and, you know, thinking about that helps me identify where I can learn and grow. Um, and so in some ways it's a, it's a really empowering thing to do, you know, rather than just feeling hopeless, uh, I don't know what to do. I, you know, uh, this, this whole problem seems overwhelming. Uh, it's a very concrete uh, action plan because you look at yourself and you say, well, um, you know, I learned these values and, and now I can see that they're kind of messed up. And so I'm going to work on that. I'm going to try to identify it when it comes up in, in everyday life and, and really work to try and improve that. So in some ways, it's a really empowering way to do things. Um, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a person of color, and uh, we were talking about, um, like, cancel culture and, and accountability and all that. And um, I, I said, you know, what would happen if, if in a conversation about race, people of color gave white people feedback, and instead of getting defensive and fragile, uh, what if they, you know, actually just received that, that feedback with grace, reflected on that, that feedback, and then really made a commitment to try and change the behavior? Like, what, what would that mean? And uh, my friend basically said, that, that would be revolutionary. Like, if white people started to do that, it would be revolutionary. Our country would really change. Um, it's- is the problem with our society that we don't do enough introspection, that we don't do enough soul-searching, that we don't do enough self-actualization exercises? Uh, that's, that's a tough question. Or, is, or, or we just pulled so many out of schools and education that, and put them into wars that we're just raised to dumb. That we just keep getting dumber into an idiocracy sense. <sighs> I think in terms of introspection, I certainly think we are not encouraged to do that in our, mm. in our, in our culture. Um, we live in a pretty consumerist capitalistic culture that, that, that says when you feel uh, emotions that you don't like, uh, the best thing to do is avoid them. And, Hang and on, doctor. All- I got to get a burger. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think about this with my daughter a lot. So, so I'm a full-time parent. I sit at home and spend uh, most of my days with my daughter. And uh, she's little. She's she's not quite two yet, but her fixation on sugar is already so strong. Mm. And especially especially when it comes to uh, strong emotions, so she'll get upset about something. You know, we'll tell her no, and immediately she'll want like 
a cookie or, or something. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, you start to notice this pattern of behavior where the emotions are, are solved and tried to, you know, be fixed with, uh, in this case, sugar. Uh, and really, I think that's just a microcosm of what happens in our, in our country at large. You know, uh, we've, yeah, we've got these corporations that say, don't, don't worry about feeling bad. Um, eat this. Yeah, exactly. Eat this, <laughs> eat this drink this, smoke that. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, but but you're right. It's interesting because a young person, you know, isn't in the, hasn't watched all the stupid ads that we have to watch on TV, and yet that's the that's the uh, preclusion of their human nature to go to. Um, human nature in itself is is a pretty toxic little brew. Um, I one of my favorite sayings is people are like we need world peace, and I'm like, hey, you want world peace? I'll get you world peace. Kill all the humans. The world will be happy and fine <laughs> after that because um, we're the problem uh, but yeah i think i think i i i you know one of the things that will bring up um, the me too thing and everything like and and uh a lot of people don't have a life exposure to domestic violence to to uh, a lot of the abuses that were going on the me too movement you know i i've dated a lot of women over the years being single but i've never <clears throat> acted god forbid in a way that the, a lot of the Me Too exposed. I've never sent a dick pic. I never would. I mean, if, if I had a wife, I wouldn't send it because that'll just be on the internet once I piss her off. <laughs> um, and and besides, it won't fit in the frame. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, there's some masculine toxicity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we that I'm still working thing. on that one. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but no, one, I, you know, at first when Me Too came out, I was really kind of like, what the hell's going on? You know, and you're like, what? And then you started hearing the stories mm-hmm. and just the horror stories of, of bad behavior. You know, I've yelled at plenty of my friends who send dick pics to people. They, they don't even know if there's an underage girl on the other end of the line. And I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, you're going to end up in jail. Number one, number two, it's not cool. And it's kind of an ethical. Um, but, I would never date that way. So I didn't understand the stories. Um, same thing with relationships. Like one time I, uh, one time I had a speeding ticket and I, and I had an argument over whether the cop had actually paced me. And uh, in the appeal, they put me uh, in domestic violence court for the appeal. Mm-hmm. And being my name Voss, I was at the end of the docket. So for two hours I had to watch domestic violence court cases. Wow. And that was a learned eye opener. I bet. That was a learned eye opener. And it wasn't just guys either. There was a couple of girls that beat the crap out of some little guy. Um, but it was mostly guys. Um, and so, you know, listening to people's stories, learning from them. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of James Baldwin recently mm-hmm. talking about yeah. the experience that he had when he was raised. And he has a great uh, intellectual conversation style and emotional uh, uh, connection uh, conversation style. That's the best way I can explain it. Um but but he also is talking to to me and he go you know he basically talks about how this is your problem here's how you should fix it mm-hmm. um but you know maybe we need more self actualization in this world more where we where we you know put some more personal responsibility that's something i've tried to do with my life and gone mm-hmm. hey what am i contributing to this you know yeah. maybe it's me <laughs> <laughs> yeah right uh, you know i think uh when thinking about the me too movement uh, one of the most powerful things for me about that movement is the stories. You know, there's no denying that um, those stories, when they came out, um, they they changed the way that we that we think about sexual violence, gender-based violence, uh, because it's not just this sort of theoretical thing that happens anymore. It's real women in our lives that we that we know uh, who have these stories, and so you know, it it just changes the whole thing. And I think it really reveals the power of, of stories to, to you know, um, change people's minds and uh, change people's perspectives on, on this sort of thing. Um, yeah, we need and, to teach this in school. Will this help in school? Because I don't think we can leave it to parents. Because parents have too many. Uh, one thing I've been talking about with a lot of the authors we've had on recently is I think racism uh, and what it is, how to deal with it, the aspects of it. In in school, it should be taught. There should be just classes on, like, am I racist or how do you know if you're racist or how not to be a racist. Um, there should be a whole school, like, you should have a six-month class or whatever. I don't know how the schools work nowadays. But, you know, like, <laughs> the, the, they, there should just be a class on, that everyone has to take on 
how not to be a racist and what it is, how it works, white privilege, how to, you know, how to learn, listen and learn. I, I really think that's got to be put in the education system because um, yeah. you can't leave it to parents because I've seen what parents do. Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, you know, it's got to be more comprehensive than just uh, in the house. You know, it's mm-hmm. got to be uh, from from all around. Uh, kids have to hear those messages from lots of different places. I mean, we yeah. have... Like Dr. Lawrence Chatters, who was on the video with you guys and has been on the show twice. I mean, yep. he's he works in a college and he's an inclusion <clears throat> person. Like, why do we have to wait till college to have inclusion people? Um, we should have these. You know, you you got to catch this stuff when it's young, yeah, because it grows up, et cetera. Yeah, it's true. And I will say, uh, first of all, uh, my brother is a is a K twelve educator in Texas, and um, you know they're they're trying. You know they're trying to do a lot. Uh, it's it's hard that I think K twelve schooling has more restrictions uh, with funding and that sort of thing, and, and parents are more involved, and so it's a different kind of conversation. But I absolutely agree. Uh, and as a, a full time parent, I think I now understand that um, having conversations with your your kids about this stuff uh, can be tricky. You know, it can be, it can be tricky. My daughter's <laughs> not quite two yet. Um, and I'm already starting to think about how to, how to talk about this stuff with her uh, because you, you kind of need to set a precedent. You know, you, you need to say uh, we're the type of family that's going to talk about this stuff, whether it's uncomfortable or not. Uh, and so if it's, if it's not easy to talk about this stuff at home, then it's certainly not going to be easy to talk about this stuff uh, at school. And so, you know, I, I just think it takes a commitment from, from all of us to say, you know, this is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Our country is riddled with a racist history, but we need to, we need to face it. And, and Black Lives Matter is doing a lot of that. And I just hope the conversation continues. I'm heartened that the protest is still going and hopefully it still will be going up until Election Day. Uh, and I hope they all register to vote. Um, they, I mean, like everybody who's out protesting. Um, the... Uh, uh, and I'm glad to see it being supported from all sides. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to me, the journey. Uh, I always tried to fight racism in my own head and and always felt like I wasn't racist. Uh, I had friends growing up that I didn't even realize were African-American. Um, and I uh, there, there were moments where I went, oh, I, I actually do have one from school. And I've talked about that before in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh I always tried to, you know, think about, you know, okay, well, I don't want to be a racist. You know, we don't want to hire, you know, I've hired lots of people. We didn't want to be racist in that manner either. Um, But just being a better contributor to the world. But uh, when Trump started running for election, you know, and the white nationalist stuff started coming out and I started learning some of the codes and the keywords that the white nationalists used because, you know, Trump was using those words as his dog whistle, you know, like Mm -hmm. culture. No, and then when he says "are," he doesn't mean like all Americans. He means like just you know the coded white people he's talking to uh, mm-hmm. who support him. Um, and um, so I had to learn all these things, and I had to re go back to white privilege and go, "Wow, okay, so well, I need a better understanding of what white privilege really is." And and it's it's kind of given to us; we take it for granted. One of my favorite things is is uh, was Chris Rock, I think. Um, and there was another person, I think, who was, uh, I'm not sure who he was, maybe a philosopher or somebody, but he said, he said basically, there's not a white person who would ever trade uh, lives with a black person. So that mm-hmm. kind of tells you what the problem is, um, that it's not fun. Um, mm-hmm. Chris Rock, I think uh, one of his bits was, uh, you know, n- nobody in this, nobody, no white people in this audience would trade with me, and I'm a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's, uh, pretty plain. Yeah, one of the things that I I like to think about a lot with with my own introspection around this kind of stuff is is that sort of distinction between good white people and bad white people. And um, I I think, you know, my tendency is to want to believe that I'm one of the good ones, you know, that – that I, that I believe all the, the anti-racist things and I do all the anti-racist things and then that makes me, you know, a good one. And, and in some ways it means that I, I don't have to keep working <laughs> hard on, on the things that I need to work on. And it separates me from the bad white people who, uh, you know, are, are uh, the white supremacists and uh, the people who are saying the overtly racist things. And I, I do think it's important to distinguish between that sort of overt and a covert kind of racism. And uh, in my experience, having conversations with, with all kinds of white people, 
uh, about racism, it is not helpful to say, uh, you know, I'm a good one and you're a bad one. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, then no. I need to delete half my half my posts. Well, I don't. I don't claim to be. I don't claim to be the good one, but I do point out yeah. the bad ones. <laughs> well, and, and I'm, I'm on a journey still. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Um, but I also think that uh, we are all socialized in a culture of whiteness, mm. and uh, all of us participate in that, uh, whether we we want to acknowledge it or not. And so, yeah, uh, it's like parsing, um, you know, Harris here. It's like. To what degree are we talking about good and bad when we're all complicit in, in this larger system of oppression? And so, Maybe that's the fear that people have that makes them upset and hard to face it is because they feel like they're, they've been bad. They didn't mean to maybe because they were closet racist or, uh, you know, unconscious bias. And maybe they didn't mean to. And, you know, being told that, uh, oh, you were being bad, you're just, it's, you just fall right into denial. Yeah, I, I know for myself that has been true. Uh, it, it's easier to try and deny um, the reality of other people's suffering and how you contributed to that than it is to, to own up to it and say, yeah, yeah, maybe there was something, whether I knew about it or not, uh, that I was a part of that, that led to these people's pain and suffering. Um, but again, I think for me, uh, once I recognize that and I'm willing to acknowledge it, uh, it feels way better to to just say like, yeah, actually that's true. And how do I do something different nope. um, rather than try to continue ignoring? One of the one of the things I talk about too that I don't hear a lot of people talk about is the scarcity oh. element of it. Um, one of the factors in the in the um, I remember reading, and I want I just want to make one last point going back to Chris Rock thing. You know, if you want to trade places with Chris Rock and, and who's a millionaire. You know, that tells you we have a problem. That's the indication. Um, the, uh, but the scarcity element of it, because a lot of people look at, they see Black Lives Matter and they feel intimidated because they're like, oh, well, if I have to help, uh, you know, minorities rise up, then it takes away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Eddie Glaude made a comment on, on the show where he talked about how a lot of white people will be like, well, we support, you know, uh, we support black people and minorities, uh, but yeah, we don't want affirmative action, <laughs> you know? So um, you, you got to make some choices here, but a rising tide lifts all boats. And a lot of people operate from the scarcity thing. Uh, when Trump was, after Trump was elected, you know, we all looked at our, we all looked at what went on and went, what, what the hell? And one of the elements was, is a lot of people were in the Rust Belt a lot of people that were the old union working people were like, no one cares about us. No one gave us jobs. Um, mm-hmm. The minorities took our jobs and now we're upset because we're not getting, we're not getting paid. And there was a writer, it might've been Van Jones or somebody, but they wrote a great article on, you know, what's interesting about what we're hearing about the Rust Belt white experience. This has been going on in minorities with cities in you know, major cities for, you know, hundred years. Mm-hmm. The only time that they decide to care about it and vote for a giant racist is, uh, you know, it's finally gotten to them. So welcome uh-huh. to, you know, our world that's been this way for a hundred years. And it's really true. Um, and part of, part of their vote at a, at a very core, deep closet level was I'm American. I manifest destiny and I have a right not to be poor and F the rest of you people. And that's kind of what you see in the message of what's going on with all lives matter and, you know, Trumpism and all this sort of thing could be, mm-hmm. that could be my theory, but that's, uh, that's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a really interesting story from, uh, from America's history during uh, sort of the colonial days um, where, you know, there was sort of the indentured servants who were brought over from from Europe who had, you know, they were sort of on this like seven year deal where, you know, they, they had to work so long and then, then they could sort of have their freedom if they, if they worked for it. Uh, and then of course there were the, the slaves that were brought over from Africa. Um, well, uh, at some point there were, you know, the indentured servants who were white and the black slaves who had kind of escaped and were sort of plotting this uprising against the, the wealthy white elite landowners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before this time, the, the term white uh, was not like an identity. It wasn't something that like anybody in this country really identified with. If you look back through the history, it was 
mm. Christian or European or, you know, they didn't, uh. they didn't use that racialized term. Uh, and so what happened was they, they sort of made a law that said, um, you know, if, if any black slave is caught uh, out and about, uh, they can, they can be returned for a, for a handsome reward. And so essentially in the law, they, they created this uh, divide and conquer strategy where they, they essentially made the, the white indentured servants white uh, through this law and rewarded them for, um, for returning the, the, the black slaves uh, into slavery. Wow. And so, you know, again, dividing conquer. And, it was basically um, turning your plotters, the people you're plotting with sort of policy. That's wow. right. Yeah. And, and it, that, that was that, divided what, conquer. Wow. I just, that yeah. just hit me. Wow. Yeah. So, so that kind of divide and conquer politics has existed in our country forever uh, and continues to play. I mean, uh, that's sort of one of Trump's go-to political strategies um, is to sort of pit poor whites against people of color. They're infighting with each other rather than working together uh, to, to, you know, um, work for their rights uh, and and their their freedom and liberties um, against the the wealthy white elite. So these dynamics still play out today. We have a lot of is 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 it all packaged in human nature between toxic masculinity, racism, and violence, and just all the ugly parts of human nature. You know, um, I, I might be an optimist here, but uh, I, I don't think that human nature is necessarily uh, a bad thing. I, I do think that fear and pain are part of the human experience, and those are are difficult. And uh, we find ways to avoid uh, processing those emotions, and I think oftentimes they lead to isolation and, and division between different kinds of people, different kinds of pain, you know? Cause like one thing I saw a mix of it the other day, there was a guy in Australia, I believe it was. And he'd asked, uh, I believe an Asian woman out, um, and, uh, in a hallway of their apartment and she, you know, said, you know, don't want to go out with you. And so he immediately just started yelling and screaming or threatening to chop off her head, which is mm-hmm. not, not, good not not appropriate in any way shape or yeah. form. um and and then racial epitaphs so he he was mixing the whole uh toxic masculinity with the racial epithets and the violence i mean it was like he just made stew uh, of, of uh, disgustingness um yeah. and so i i watched it and i went i went man i mean there's if we could figure out how to surgically go in and cut out whatever that part of <laughs> human nature is that disgusting uh, ugliness. Um, you know, one of the things, and, and the sexuality of it too. Uh, and, and another example, uh, I was uh, uh, going through jo- uh, James Baldwin's stuff. And James Baldwin was, was um, and I think uh, Eddie God talked about in his book, uh, uh, Begin Again, which everyone should check out. Um, but he was talking about how James Baldwin went on a tour through the South. And he got hit on sexually by other race, racist dudes who okay. were racist, racist, had issues with him. But and he, he talks about how and he goes in the psychology of these white men who are racist and have this penchant for violence with this confused sexuality mm. and they, they don't. Like they're just, and and I, I forget a lot of what he he really goes into some good analogy of it, but but this whole thing of where, um, it's this stew of of ugliness that that's in their head, and they don't even understand what what's going on. They're conflicted, you know. Uh, I think we talked uh, on some prior shows about uh, you know Andrew Jackson, I think it was, who had you know he he's fathered a whole uh, army of people. Uh, through his uh, slaves and a lot of slave masters did. And so you're like, wait, you hate these people and you beat them, but then you want to have, have interpersonal relationships with them. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, So one of the things I think about um, is sort of this idea that we create our own demons, you know, we create our own enemies. 
And I think in the building of systems like patriarchy or, or sort of like male dominated society where, where men sort of have more access to power, same could be said about whiteness and what people call white supremacy. Um, it, in the very nature of building those systems from, from the founding of our country, we also created our own demons, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, this, this is something I talk about a lot, but the, the ways in which those systems, also, while privileging people who are white or, or men, they also harm us in many ways, right? So, mm-hmm. so the example of the, the, the guy in the hallway uh, who sort of, you know, uh, blew his lid at the, the woman who refuted him, um, that couldn't have been a fun experience for him. Um, but he was raised in a culture, um, the, even though I, it sounds like it was maybe Australia, but I think they have a lot of the same cultural codes that we do. Um, he was raised in a culture where as a, a man, he was led to believe that he's entitled to a woman's body. Um, and and if, if he doesn't get that or if she denies that to him, then he's also entitled to, um, to inflict violence on her. Um, and so again, this is a, a, an example of the ways that the systems that we built to privilege us also harm us. Um, and so I, I do a lot of work uh, with fatherhood and thinking about dads. And a big issue in the fatherhood community is around paternal leave. So dads being able to, you know, take some time off work when when their kids are born. Um, you know, again, as we sort of built this country, men were in charge, and they said we don't need to care about that because that's women's work. That's what women do. And so we've established this whole sort of like, um, you know, culture, especially around professionalism and work where um, we think of the family as sort of a a woman's thing and work as a man's thing. And now, you know, we're after feminism and the feminist movement, we're starting to get a little bit more enlightened uh, and men are realizing, hey, you know, maybe actually it's a good idea for me to be home with my family a little bit. Maybe it's a good idea for me to help try and raise my kids. Uh, and so now there's this whole movement of men trying to advocate and fight for paternity leave, which essentially they're fighting against the system that we as men created for ourselves. Uh, so it's a, it's a feminist uh, effort, I think, that, uh, that men are fighting for in terms of paternity leave. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, those are all, I think, great examples of, of uh, that kind of dynamic that you're talking about. And I think it comes down to the same thing of scarcity, too, where where we feel that, well, I have to give up something to contribute something, when you really don't. I mean, uh, we talked about this at the pre-show. I've been seeing all my life. I, I dated a lot when I was younger, um, and I would always have to hear the stories from women of how their dad didn't hung enough as a child, or there was other issues, uh, rape, molest, incest. I mean, you, you name the story, I've heard it all. Um, uh, bad boyfriends, uh, beatings, um, uh, almost, almost killing, um, you know, domestic violence. I mean, I've heard every story. Um, uh, I hope every story, geez. Um, and, uh, and I've seen the damage and the fallout. Like I've seen the result of what that looks like at age 30 or 40 or, well, I've never dated anybody who's over 50. Um, and but I've seen the damage. Like like I've had girlfriends that are still cutting, not not as teenagers. They're cutting at forty five, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which isn't good. And they haven't they haven't resolved whatever's whatever caused that from their things. And 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 so whenever I see a young uh, girl who's cutting at teenagers, I just I just worry sick because mm-hmm. I, I know what that looks like at forty five. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And the damage, and you know, I mean, I've I've seen I've seen a lot of damage. I've seen damage from fathers not being there, fathers not giving enough attention, fathers using toxic masculinity and misogyny to, um, to not give uh, their daughters enough uh, love and attention or treat them as respectable human beings, and then you know they just go out and find another guy who's like their dad, and and uh, uh, most of us, you know, that go find relationships, we're we're trying to resolve the relationships our parents had and uh mm-hmm. unfortunately we get ourselves in the same situations and scenarios to resolve those scenarios and we <laughs> don't because they're not resolvable we don't have the tools right like, yeah you don't have the tools yeah yeah the reason your parents didn't get along is because uh anybody you find who's like you and them isn't going to get along either it's just you got to fix uh, a lot of stuff that's broken first that's probably why i'm still single because i'm still trying to fix what's broken with this one um yeah. and once i once i get it right 
then I'm going to share this idiot uh, if he's better with other people. Um, but no, I, I, I got to tell you, I've seen the fallout and I don't think a lot of men see the fallout. I don't think a lot of men have had the same experience that I've had in life, you know, where they see the fallout and they go, wow. Okay. So this is the end product or not even the end product, you know, wherever I meet it. Um, and, and, you know, they, they'll talk about the damage. This isn't a perception of mine. They go, this is what happened. This is how it affected me. Um, you know, sometimes you, it's pretty evident on their life patterns, you know. Oh, you've been divorced six times. Okay, something went wrong. Um, and, and that's not, I'm not saying that's their fault specifically, but come on, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I, again, I talk about uh, parenthood a lot because I'm, I'm a new parent. Um, and, and I definitely think that uh, a lot of women, you know, identify with this idea of having a, a, a difficult relationship with their father. I also think a lot of men have, have that same uh, issue yeah. as well. I know for me, I, I have a, you know, I won't call it a difficult relationship, but it's, it's complex. And, um, you know, again, I attribute a lot of that to, to masculinity and the ways that masculinity has told men that they can't be involved as dads. They shouldn't be involved as dads. They shouldn't show emotion with their kids. They should, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. And uh, it creates complicated relationships. And, and I think for me, one of the, the beautiful gifts about, about parenthood, about being a dad is that it's an opportunity to try and unlearn some of that stuff. So you, you, you know, you get to do it again and say, okay, uh, do I want to do the same thing that, that I saw my dad do, or do I want to do something different? Um, and it's, it's hard to do something different because yeah, if you haven't had that training, you don't have the tools, right? You don't have necessarily the skills. Um, but, but you do have the opportunity to, to make a different decision. I think, uh, you, I think that's why they should teach more of this in school too. You know, early on, I, I could have used a few psychology, uh, <laughs> school as a young person. Cause, uh, yeah. you know, I woke up at 50 and went, man, I got a whole mess of that behind me. Um, and, and, I mean, learning to understand about the privilege, these issues, how they impact, you know, I grew up in the generation, you're probably a lot younger than I am, but I grew up in the generation where men don't cry, you know, Mm -hmm. we we hold it all in, we just deal with it, uh, and we just go out in the garage and break things or something, I don't know, Um, that or, you know, I mean, some guys, you know, beat people and, you know, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of ways that comes out, Um, but but uh yeah the roles of of who they were um our our parents have a great impact on us which i think is another reason why we need to have more school stuff um but it's like for me if we if we fix this stuff early in school like racism what is it how not to do it what it's about privilege um all that good stuff. If we fix that early, we can start creating generations that are going to grow up, hopefully eradicate most of racism, and then they're going to raise kids, and then maybe we teach them some psychology too. Um, I'm a big proponent of of where I think that before people become parents, they should have to go to a two-year course on how to be not only great parents, but uh, how to get along with their spouses. Because a lot of people, including me, go into relationships with their little broken glass you know, that they grew up with and all their issues. And then they got their broken glass and you're like, Hey, let's play. (laughs) I'm sure this will work out fine. (laughs) Let's take your toxic stew of dysfunction and my toxic stew of dysfunction. And, and then guess what? Let's raise some kids that are innocent minded and (laughs) an open page. And let's screw that crap out of them too. And you're just like, yeah, what, what could go wrong? And then, you know, 400 generations later, um, yeah, yeah. so, so I, I'm a big believer that somehow we have to, we have to either attempt to stop it or try to stop it and create new, new thought processes. You know, right now we're in this stew of, with Black Lives Matter where, uh, you know, everyone's at a different point, you know, everyone's like, okay, am I a real racist? And I don't think, I don't think they're doing that in introspection, but you know, people are going, okay, so maybe I'm closet racist or maybe I have unconscious bias. What am I doing to contribute to this problem? Um, clearly there is a problem. Um, but a lot of people are on different levels. Like I have friends that I'll talk to and I'll be like, you're really in the closet with your racism. And they're like, how man? I mean, it's just our culture, you know? And you're like, okay, well, uh, um, you got a long ways to go, baby. And then, you know, there's some people who, who like me, kind of get it. We understand white privilege. 
Uh, but there's still things that you see and there's still things that you go, okay, am I supporting something that, that isn't, mm. that, that's contributing to the problem? Am I, do I have some sort of thing? I mean, there's nothing I can do about certain things about white privilege. If a cop pulls me over, there's nothing I can do to change how he's going to deal with me. Um, but there's different things that I can do to uh, support things. Um, you know, one thing we talked about earlier, um, and this is this is a great sort of analogy that I saw the other day, is is about schools and wars, and uh, and how uh, you mentioned how you know we don't put a lot of our money into schools and educations enough to really teach this sort of thing. And I saw a great analogy of a of a political cartoon that showed this picture of of uh you know this guy walking up to a giant police department and he goes he goes here's a trillion dollars um go go uh hire a bunch of police and police our cities and everything and then they go to the school and they go they go yeah uh we just paid the police a bunch of money so we don't have a lot of money to give you so um just kind of do your best figure and then they out. showed a picture <laughs> yeah figure it out and they showed a picture of uh, the people leaving the school looking at this police army Amada going, yep, we're just waiting for you. Yep. yep. And it just really spoke to how, how, you know, I believe in police officers. I don't think they should be 100% defunded, but we definitely need to look at why we've been on this path for, I don't know, two, 300, however many years of police departments, why this isn't working for us, why it's always been racial, why it's always been violent, why it hasn't succeeded in, doing anything except being um, incredibly racist. There's a book I actually saw on Audible today um, that, that's uh, called The Second Coming of Jim Crow or The New mm-hmm. Jim Crow, and it's mm-hmm. about how basically Jim Crow-ish type laws that supported, the, the, um, that supported putting people into prison and creating the prison industrial complex that we have that's, that's mostly minorities, mm-hmm. um, those laws were basically like a Jim Crow sort of law to, mm-hmm. I mean, instead of putting, you know, uh, black and white bathrooms, uh, we just put you in prison. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's going to be an interesting book to read and, and get some introspective on, but I really think we have to address these issues. And I think the hardest part is to get people to, uh, admit to them or start down that path. Like I had somebody on my Twitter the other day. She's like, I'm so sick of hearing about racism. Everyone's a racist and everything's racist and I'm sick of it. There is no racism. And you're like, wow, man, how do we even get her ramp on the ramp? Yeah. Um, I do think that that's, that's a huge challenge in our country, especially uh, with the idea of colorblind racism, which, uh, you know, after the civil rights movement, I think a bunch of white people said like, okay, the civil rights movement was difficult and a lot of the hard conversations happened if we just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen, then we won't have to, to face these problems. Uh, and so we had a couple generations uh, of sort of colorblindness. And I think we're starting to now realize that that's, that's not really a great way to address problems, uh, is, is ignoring them. It's not really yeah. a good way to, uh, the whole shush and run. Kind the of whole great American way. Yeah, just show it on the carpet. We'll deal with it later. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's like TSA, right? You see something, you say something. Um, you know, my, my big thing, uh, is that talking about, about really hard issues like racism or, or sexism, it's, it's good for us, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually good for us to talk about these things. Even though it's hard, it's good for us. It's good for us personally because it means we're learning, growing, maybe healing and doing some of that, that, uh, personal introspection work that you're talking about. It's good for our kids because, um, uh, they might actually grow up in a culture where it's, it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's not, mm-hmm socially shunned or, you know, they're, they're sort of made to feel strange for uh, asking questions about this stuff. And then, you know, it's good for everyone. So imagine uh, a whole country of people who are committed to talking about these things and committed to understanding, like you said, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, where if we're going to solve this serious problem, it, it really involves all of us. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of country uh, that I would be really proud to live in and one that I, I would be really uh, excited about mm-hmm. uh, in terms of living in the future. But uh, we're not there yet. And, uh, but, but I do think that, that we're making strides every day. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, done incredible work in terms of raising people's consciousness, uh, in terms of starting conversations about this, getting people. I mean, I just went home for the 4th of July and 
had one of the most intense and in-depth conversations with my family about race that I've ever had before. Uh, it was hard. It was uncomfortable. There were tears. Uh, but, you know, even though it was hard, I think it was really healthy for us to talk about those things because it, it's a topic that we really never address openly as a family. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's like there's all these parts of the world that are happening and if you're not talking about it, then you're basically just just uh, ignorant to, to the way the world is. Yeah. So what I, it's what I told my niece and nephew this uh, Christmas. I said, I said, there's three things in life. There's the things you know, there's the things you don't know, and there's the things you don't know that you don't know. Um, uh, so technically it would be the things you know, the things you know you don't know, and the things you don't know you don't know. And, and those are the aspects that I think a lot of us uh, uh, always need to be learning and experiencing. I mean, I'm 52 now. I'm still learning stuff. I'm still awakening to stuff. Uh, seems to be a lot more because uh, what's what's uh, interesting about these days is I've got quite the pattern to look back on and go, wow, okay, there's some uh, wreckage. Yeah, there's like a whole <laughs> strew of it going back 50 years. Maybe that was me. Um, yeah. No, yeah, I, I find the thing, the older I get, uh, the more I feel like I need to learn, the more I realize yeah. I, I don't know, you know, and the more I realize yeah. – uh, man, I was really, yeah, like you said, just, just sort of ignorant to whole parts of myself and parts of my life. And I think, I think you're right. What we need to do as a society is, and this has been brought up in some of the prior topics we've had on this discussion, is we need to have policies like government policies that mm-hmm. support this stuff. But we seem to always fail on policy because, um, like with Eddie Glaude Jr.'s book, Begin Again, he, he paints the arc of where we go from civil rights to different presidents who are either good for racism, uh, racism or uh, bad for stopping racism, like Nixon. Nixon was a real supporter of racism, and and uh, you know the the drug war is a race war um, that he created. Um, and you know Reagan, he talks about Reagan. He talks about uh, how people felt with uh, uh, you know a lot of people took the assumption. Well, you know uh, President Obama's president so we fixed that whole racism thing um and we've got to quit relying on the government to make these policies i think it's important that we you know do our soul searching do our internalism uh be self-actualized fix our our stuff internally and i think that's how we're going to be as a country like you say we're going to be as a people first uh and then hopefully we go elect people that are going to be uniters and people that are um going to uh you know, not be dividers, especially on the on the prominence of race uh, or anything else for that matter. Women, we, you see the whole stew we got going on. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I, one thing I want to ask you about is incels. What do you think about these incel? I mean, we talked about toxic masculinity a little bit. These incels are an interesting little creatures um, that I don't fully understand because I don't know. You know, I don't know why I. If I wanted to ask a girl out, I went and asked her out, and she said no. That's just part of life. Um, but I guess I wasn't. It, I mean, these guys really have some toxic masculinity problems going on, don't they? You know, um, yes. The, the answer is yes, of course. Um, and um, you know, I look at the I look at men like that, groups like that, and it's really difficult for me to not see just the blatant pain and suffering that those people must be experiencing in order to, to behave and act the way that they do. And so uh, what is it about their experience where they're feeling like they're not being heard or they're not being validated in some way? Um, and not to say that, uh, you know, these people are, are victims uh, or, you know, anything like that. But it, again, from coming from my perspective as a straight white man, um, these are people that I feel like are, one, um, my responsibility, you know, I, if we're going to do education around, uh, sexism, racism, um, these people need to be a part of the conversation clearly because they're doing some damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, if it's anybody's responsibility to, to, to do that education and to train them, it's, it's me, you know, it's somebody who looks just like them, who's, who's probably had some similar feelings and similar experiences. And so, Again, going back to that idea of like good men versus bad men or good white people versus bad white people, it's like 
you know, yeah, I, I don't think what they're doing is great. And if I want to have any kind of productive conversation with somebody like that, I need to level with them and try and understand where they're coming from first. And they, and are they products of bad parents that taught them toxic masculinity? Have you ever studied what causes them? Because I haven't, but that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, parents have a lot to do with it. Uh, certainly, uh, I think just our culture at large. You know, we yeah. if you watch uh, any TV, there's there's going to be the strongman character. Uh, you know, so media certainly has a lot to do with it, but it's it's everywhere. It's pervasive, and so dependent on parents, I think, is is uh, not necessarily a complete story. But we all have a part to play in, in changing yeah. the message around, around who men can be. That was the next point I was going to bring up with you is how much, um, and this comes from you know us all having our problems, and then it gets put into movies, ads, TV. Um, you know, I, I talked uh, I talked about how I you know one of the men definers that I looked to when I was growing up was John Wayne mm-hmm. and James Baldwin talks about, you know, how you, you grow up watching John Wayne and you see a lot of the racism issues too. And then there's a lot mm-hmm. of misogyny in there. And, and so even just recently I had to start looking at, at D at, at D constructing my John Wayne sort of psyche and element and, and the contributions he had. And, and that's, that's been kind of hard. Cause I kind of liked John Wayne when I was a kid, but now yeah. looking back on it all, I can go, wow. Okay. Oops. Um, but these, the, the, what's interesting about these incels and, and I just had an epiphany when you were talking is how, how much is the same, how much is the sameness if I was to replace the word privilege with entitlement, are those two the same? I think a lot of times uh, entitlement is a, a byproduct of privilege. So uh, if, if you have privilege, then you feel entitled to mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Um, yeah. I, I certainly think there's a strong relationship between them. Yeah. But you wouldn't say they're the same? No, I don't think so. Okay. I, I think uh, anybody can feel entitled um, but not everybody has privilege. Hmm. Is so an entitlement like, though a privilege of, I don't know, I may be getting semantics of the English language, but, but, but to me, it's, it's interesting to me with those incels um, and, and it is level of entitlement. And you see the entitlement too with the manifest destiny issue. Well, we're Americans and you're like, yeah, but we know that means it's white people for some of you. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the the manifest destiny and then also you know like the religion part of it well we came to this country and built it and you know no you actually came here and slaughtered the indians and slaved mm-hmm. them and then you did it to people in africa <laughs> and you just kind of been on a hell roll ever since of being awful people um and but there's kind of that entitlement like well we built this country so it's owed to us or something mm-hmm. you know what i mean like yeah uh, the African people didn't come here. We brought them here, so they should thank us for it. I, I think mm. someone on a recent podcast talked about that. And so it's kind of interesting that, that segue between the two junctions of, of privilege and entitlement and the feeling that, well, it's it's our right. And I've heard people say that. They're like, it's our, it's our right. And, you know, we should be first in line. And you're like, but you know, that means... <laughs> You know, I mean, somebody else has to take a less or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's this whole idea of the myth of meritocracy, right? Where yeah. we we believe you can sort of work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and it doesn't really matter where you come from. Uh, and the reality is that in this country, that's just not true. Uh, yes, we we have a capitalist system where uh, people people can make money. There's there's no questioning that. Uh, but depending on where you come from, your background, your skin color your gender, all these things, you have different access to opportunities, you have different access to resources. Um, and so, you know, to, to claim that, that we, and speaking on behalf of sort of like white people or men, uh, that like we built this country, I think is uh, just very short-sighted because it's very clear if you look back, the people who actually built this country, like the brick and mortar, like the people who laid down the foundation for this country are not people that look like, like me, right? They're yeah. mostly slaves mostly people who didn't, didn't come from, uh, from Europe. And so, um, you know, to, to claim that like we deserve entitlements, uh, I think it's just sort of ill-sighted. Um, and I think 
there also is a strong claim for reparations, right? Like because people of color actually built this country, I think there, there's probably a, a case to be made that maybe those people should be compensated in some way for the hundreds of years that they weren't able to accumulate wealth uh, because they were enslaved and actually building the infrastructure for the country that we now get to enjoy, and they they still don't. <laughs> and and yeah. you look at you look at too. I mean, um, how how the the environments and sometimes especially in inner cities, lower funded areas as well, uh, and they're they're racially built that way uh, to be to uh, to have prejudice um, is is. Uh, is something where it's hard to get ahead. I mean, when you're being pulled over by the cops all the time and you're being thrown in jail all the time for every little offense by a racist cop, it's a little hard to get that great job and get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dr. Lawrence Chatters, who was on the show, um, he recounted a story of when he grew up, how he had himself and two brothers. And very early on, once he started becoming aware of what was going on, uh, he 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 read that read or heard that one out of three uh, African Americans black people end up in prison, mm-hmm. and so he sat literally and looked at his two other brothers and went, "Which one of us?" Uh-huh. I mean, can you imagine having that sort of expectation when you're growing up as a young boy? I mean, yeah. that's just that's almost disabil- dis- disabilitating. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would I would just be, I'd probably be the going in jail too because I'd be like. Mm. Um, I remember, well, this is a, I, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a, uh, a, a, you know, I've had different examples of that in my life where I had a, like a, I had a driving school teacher who's like, you're all going to flunk. And I was like, screw you, dude. And I flunked. <laughs> um, so I'd probably be the guy in jail, but no, I mean, you look at it and, and people are asking for help and it's, a, it has to admit that we should listen and we should come into our own analogies of privilege and what it's about recognize that it's that it's uh, there recognize that people are hurting like one of the th- analogies i've been using recently is is if you know you were drowning uh in a river you're like hey chris man you're on shore there uh can you help me i'm having a hard time here i'm actually going to drown and die if i don't get some help yeah. and uh you know uh because last time i checked drowning lives matters and i'm up on the shore you know eat my uh I don't know, my, my picnic food there. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey man, I'd like to get up for you, but you know, I just want, you to know, all lives matter, not just drowning people. So <laughs> I really can't help you right now because I really don't feel your pain, but good luck with that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of when you hear people say all lives matter, that's, that's pretty much what they're saying. When, yeah. you know, like we've talked about really, you should say, Hey man, there's some people that are hurting. I think we can admit there's some problems. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. There's so yeah. many signals. Like if you can't see there's problems right now, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, even if you don't admit to them, you can, you can at least see that, uh, there's a lot of problems. And if you can't just tune in and watch the black lives matter protests and, um, I'll give you some clues. Um, yeah. so anything more we want to cover here? Uh, this has been a great discussion we've had with you, Kyle. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Um, You know, I think one thing that that I would sort of plug and and, uh, encourage people to look into is uh, my book that I I co-authored with my wife called Vital, A Torch for Your Social Justice Journey. Um, We put it out there a couple of years ago, and uh, we self-published it. And really, it was a way for us to kind of capture the values that we both bring to, to the social justice work that we do. Um, and it just got really positive, uh, positive um, reviews and, and was positively received by, by lots of folks. It's, like you said, it's won a couple of awards. And um, it really, I think, one of the most um, sort of resounding reviews about the book is that it's very approachable. So regardless of where you're coming from and the background that you have about social justice, about talking about race or gender, or these things, um, you, you're going to find it probably helpful and it's going to meet you uh, where you're at in, in that conversation. And so you can mm-hmm. find it on Amazon, uh, ebook copy or paper book copy. Um, yeah. And, and again, you can check me out at my website, kyleashley.com uh, or, or uh, my consulting uh, website at ashleyconsulting.com. Awesome sauce. We, and we should have you on again to talk about fatherhood. We didn't really get into fatherhood much and, and how to be a good father and impact kids. I know I saw some really great things in other um, the countries, like I believe it's France, where they, 
where they have um, where they have people work for the government who come and help mothers. Uh, I think when they're going through their pregnancy or shortly after they've had kids and they, you know, they help them with the chores in the house. Uh, they also give fathers leave time and they just find that that just makes for a more healthier society. And a lot of this stuff is, you know, taxed through the corporations that, which are interesting enough for the same corporations that we have here in America. And we just don't ask them to step up, but they're, they willingly step up in other countries and they kind of have to, but they're fine with it. Cause they're like, okay. Yeah. That's just how it goes. And it's um, good for everybody, right? It's like you said, a rising yeah. tide lifts all boats. You know, they, they see, okay, if families are happy, then employees are happy. And yeah. we make better products, you know? I mean, I, you know, we've all seen the, I don't know if we've all seen, but many of us have seen the challenge of, of what our parents have to go through. I've never been a parent, so I never had to deal with that. But I see, you know, my friends go through parenting. Uh, one of the reasons I don't have kids is because that is really hard. I'm just thinking <laughs> with dogs right now. And uh, yeah. that seems to be my lane. But even then they wake me up in the mornings and I'm just like, maybe I should just not have dogs. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love my dogs. Uh, but still, it's it's hard. And, and trying to make money and, and life and provide and, and health and health insurance and just all these things, uh, especially in today's world with the collapse of the middle class, it's really a challenge to do. So we should have you on again to talk about fatherhood, how to be a better father, better parenting and stuff like that. I'd love to have that discussion with you. Uh, everyone yeah, check yeah. out. Go ahead. Yeah. Just going to say that would be awesome. I'd love you on Awesome sauce. Everyone check out Dr. Kyle Ashley's book and uh, check out his website and all that good stuff. Uh, and, and hopefully we've given you some great tools for my white people to uh, learn not to be racist <laughs> or to start thinking about down the pathway. Cause it is a long pathway. I, I don't feel like I've fully, uh, you know, gotten rid of everything, uh, any unconscious bias. I'm always concerned about that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I've fully gone through maybe how I've contributed or how I'm contributing or how I can stop contributing or what I can do, but I'm definitely having those conversations. I'm trying to share the education and get us down those roads. Um, uh, thanks, my audience, for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you guys. Go to thecvpn.com, chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. Refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. If you want to see the video version of this, you can go to youtube.com, forward slash chrisvoss. We've got some incredible more authors on the show coming up that you're going to be really blown away by, and uh, you'll love the experience uh, so far. Uh, anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next time.